The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast Target, warning it filled its shelves with too much stuff consumers did not want. And now profits will suffer. How long before the rest of retail does the same thing? And is this a sign the consumer economy is cracking? Plus, ExxonMobil on the move, climbing to a nearly eight-year high ahead. You'll hear from one market watcher who thinks there is still time to buy energy stocks. And later, a new season kicking off for the premier lacrosse league. How is this fledgling league Dealing with the softening ad market, a budget-conscious consumer, and sky-high inflation, PLL President Paul Rabel will be here to break it all down. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Side in the heart of Times Square. The gang's all here in the house tonight. <laughs> Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with a late-day rally in the markets. The S&P and Nasdaq both jumping nearly a percent. The Dow up more than 260 points. All three indices erasing losses from earlier in the session. The strength coming despite a big warning from Target this morning. The retailer saying rising inventories will hit profitability this quarter. And that got us thinking about a couple big questions hanging over these markets. First, are Target's inventory struggles emblematic of broader issues in the retail space? Second, when supply chain challenges finally get resolved, will demand for these products still be there? And finally, what will the consumer look by then? They'll be facing higher interest rates and potentially a much softer job market. So some big questions to chew on. Guy, where do you stand on this? Yeah, the second question is where I want to attack. And Tim mentioned this last week. You know, Microsoft warned on FX, but Tim said, you know, if they start warning on demand, that's going to be a problem. And I think that's true with the retailers as well. Listen, it seems to be somewhat Target-specific, Walmart-specific, although I don't think the rest of the retailers are going to be insulated from it. But I'll say this. If demand is the next thing to fall, you have to believe there's going to be another leg mark lower in the, in the broader market, Melms. But, 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 but today... The market's finished higher. And Target didn't do so bad either. Target was down 2% on the Target did fine. Look, the market's traded fantastic today. You, you mentioned in the opening up 1% into the close. We, we were actually up 1.96% from 934 to the close. In other words, we opened down. Everybody thought this was another Target Walmart day. Uh, incidentally, Walmart had an investor day yesterday, and we were just talking about this pre-show. I, I kind of feel like Walmart, without the formality of a cut, on, on, on certainly on the EPS and on margin, they basically said the same thing. They said, we've got $3 billion in inventory we need to do something with. we got to get out there early. Anything that's seasonal, we're going to cut it dramatically. And as we get into second and third, really fourth, yeah, third and fourth quarters, we're going to start to actually push some of that back uh, even more as we can. I think Walmart, uh, we've heard this from all of these folks, and I, I think there's a bit of a reassessment here. But, but for both Walmart and Target, 
I, I still believe that their consumer, especially their consumer, we've talked about this, is more under pressure. There's certain parts of the merchandise shift that we know clearly is happening. But the investments both of these companies have made into logistics and into ERP and into digital and e-commerce are things that are long-term reasons why you want to own these stocks. So in the short run, I get we're all talking about the consumer every single day and where demand is going. But at 14 times next year and at 20-ish times, even a little cheaper now on Walmart, I, I think these are stocks you can own today. We know the consumer is going to fall under some pressure at some point. Uh, but these companies aren't as bad as they appeared on those Q1 numbers. So there was a lot to, to think about here. For one thing, why? Why now? Why 70, 18 days later? What happened so dramatically that Target felt like they needed to come out and sort of give us updated, I don't know if it was guidance, but updated, oh, my God, we have way too much inventory. I'm not exactly certain when they got that, when they realized they had so much inventory. And I'm not exactly certain about how is it that Amazon, whenever they announced, right, we started to see pressure then. Interestingly, Amazon said also, we're going to get rid of space. We're going to get rid of distribution space, rid of warehouses. That's interesting. Clearly, they were in a different place than Target, who said, now we need more space because we have so much stuff and we got to put it somewhere. And if you think about what was selling and what wasn't, they told us, you know, uh, things for the home, things that are sort of larger, uh, furni- furniture, patio furniture, patio furniture Walmart sited, um, TVs. That takes a lot of space. So that's why they needed the space. But clearly, for all of it, it feels like margin pressure will remain for a long time until they work through not just the inventory that they built during this past quarter, but the inventory that they're continuing to build in the hopes of, uh, well, in the hopes of selling it, of course, a hope for a strong back to school and a hope for a strong holiday. It does make me think that anything related, like a bed, bath and beyond, anything like that, you would think would also see pressure. I'm really quite shocked that Target did not trade down more. You know, I sold when when they announced three weeks ago, I waited the three days. I bought some more stock. I sold that stock today, kind of just the same price that I bought it, because had I known this then, Mm -hmm. I probably would not have bought more then. So is it priced fairly here? I think so. I own a bunch. I don't have high expectations. But you and I were talking about today, and you said you question why don't they just get rid of guidance? Why don't they pull it? Because to change your guidance just three weeks after you, you initially pulled down guidance, it's akin to pulling it because nobody will believe it anymore. Who's going to believe this guidance if just three weeks ago they were giving guidance and now they're going to change it, right? You don't get credit if you make it and you right. get hurt again if you miss. Why have it at all? Just sort of play it out. You know, I, I always think businesses shouldn't give guidance, but now they gave it. They're kind of stuck. They should have they should have taken Missy's you know, advice and pulled the guidance, they at least for now. Me, but next time. Next time now, I know. <laughs> Dan. Yeah, I think if your antennas are not up based on whether they give it or not, I mean, they did this, okay? Snap did it last month. You know, the the changes that are happening are happening very quickly, and I think it's really interesting that we just got through a bunch of, um, you know, software earnings over the last couple months, and these were kind of like second-tier names, and a lot of people felt really good that they were talking about, well, demand's still there. If you look at what's going on with the consumer right now, we have consumer credit ticking up. It's getting to all-time highs. We see consumer savings going down. We know what the Fed's doing. We know what commodity prices are doing. We know what inflation prices are doing. So it's like, listen to them. They're telling you this. Actually, they should be giving you this guidance. And the fact that they're doing it so quickly after they had just guided officially, I think is really important here. So, you know, as an investor who's been in the markets for 25 years, these are not the things that you want to start explaining away when you think that we might be at an inflection point. And again, we're trying to unwind this experiment of $4 trillion of fiscal and monetary stimulus to battle a black swan event 
We're raising interest rates. We've only done 150 basis point. Two more are expected over the next month and a half or so. QT just started. There is no reason to try to get in front of this. I believe this is the tip of the iceberg as it relates to the consumer. These massive companies would not be guiding this frequently, in, you know what I mean, um, mm-hmm. if they didn't believe that something was happening that will not be corrected in one quarter. I'm with you on that. Thank but you. the fact of the matter is, is the markets don't seem to care. Mm-hmm. So we've seen, we just put up the Snap, the Microsoft, the Target, all within 30 days or so they cut their guidance, right? Today, nothing. Hardly a reaction. So why they pri- not? Because why they, not? Because they priced Target down 25% on a, on a 15% earnings revision. I mean, to me, uh, Target is so much of a better store post-COVID than it was going into it. The investments that they made and, and the market share gains that they took coming out of COVID, I don't really care. And, and I'm not investing day to day. I mean, I am on some stocks, and I'm certainly there's tactical trades and their investments. But I look at Walmart and, and Target, and, and I think there are a lot of parts of the, the consumer that are going to be under a lot of pressure uh, and significant pressure out six to nine months. But when I look at those two companies, Companies, those aren't the places that I'm freaking out. And I think the market freaked out on them. Let's play this out. Well, I like these. So, is this a game or is no, this no, no. sounds like you can call it what you want to call if you want to play it like a game. That's up to you. That's entirely <laughs> he calls it you. a mental exercise. You yeah. call For me, it's a game. game. That's yeah. fine. OK, let, let's say Target and Walmart and all the others out there, they, they cut their inventories by slashing prices, right? They've got huge deals yes. going on. You buy TVs, you buy patio furniture, you got your deck decked out guy, you got a new grill, all that stuff. I can only you imagine pull what that forward looks like. spending six months from now. What state is the consumer in? And what did they just spend on all that markdown inventory that just hit the market? Well, what, I mean, where are we then? Well, the, the retailers effectively are doing the Fed's job for them in terms of fighting inflation. Right. I mean, that's one aspect. So that's a good thing. We'll talk about energy in a second, which is completely separate. Where's the consumer? To Dan's point, not in great shape. I hear how great the consumer is. But quite frankly, credit card debt now approaching one trillion dollars with a T. That's pretty interesting. And consumer savings or savings is now levels we haven't seen. I want to say in 13 or 14 years on the wrong side of the ledger. So. Never underestimate the consumers want to spend. I've said that for years, but you have to start questioning their ability to spend. To your point, six months from now, under those guidelines, I don't think we're in a good spot at all. Right. So we talked about the overbuild. Amazon in particular, like you guys just mentioned, they did too many warehouses. They hired too many people. Mm-hmm. And Tim is right. These are investments that will pay off over a long period of time. I am surprised that Amazon is doing away with some of those warehouses. You would think a company that's doing a half a trillion dollars in annual sales on its way to probably a trillion in 10 years would would probably need that infrastructure. But here's the other point. We haven't even mentioned this, okay? And I know that we talked about it a little bit. And last night, Tim and I went back and forth on this. Unemployment is basically back to those pre-pandemic levels at 3.6%. That was a 40-year low. Everyone felt great about that pre-pandemic. It went to 10%. Here we are now. And the headlines that I actually, again, that keep getting my attention are all of these companies that are laying off or slowing down hiring. And that means there's going to be slower wage growth. Collar hiring, Correct. salaried workers. Correct. And, and, then, and then the other point about that, I mean, listen, so this is all happening. Uh, you know, David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research, he mentioned, I uh, had a conversation with him a month ago. He said, if you see a three-tenths of a percent of increase, okay, in the unemployment rate, you almost always see a recession follow that. So if we got to 3.9 or 4%, and I know a lot of bad stuff has to happen over the next three to six months for that to happen, but it's not that crazy to think about if we're burning off all of this excess and there, all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys also saw Atlanta Fed, GDP now, we know that we had a negative print in Q1. Right now, it's below 1% for Q2. And technically, if it swung to negative, and this is going to be a bad last month of Q2, then you got a recession. So I come back to the point Melissa was making, which is, okay, all that is so, and yet the market 
doesn't seem to care. They're sort of looking beyond it because they think, all right, well, maybe they, all this pressure, inflation will come down. We'll do part of the, the Fed's job for them. We already have a lot of hikes priced in. And so we're looking past that. If the market is a forward-looking indicator, which it is, do you, so Dan, you must think the market is nowhere close to... Well, we have hundreds and hundreds digesting. of stocks in the Russell 3000 that have been cut in half. I mean, they're already telling you we're in a bear market. Don't, just look at every risk asset. We haven't talked about housing is about to turn. We know what just but, mortgage rates so just So I'm did. asking, is that price, that's not pricing in fabulous but news. But I, I think the S&P is a fugazi is? now. I mean, it really oh. is, if you think about it, <laughs> wow. because it's really, what is it indicative of? If you're all right. T- all right, hold on a second. So the last time the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was above 3% was in the Q4, I, I, Q3, Q4 of 2018. chartered territory on rates. I'm not arguing with that. And the S&P back then. Literally dropped how much guy in a two month period? 19.9% from Halloween until Christmas. (laughs) And you're telling me that we got down 20% given everything that's happened since then, and that's it for the SP? You just said half the stocks in the Russell 3000 are down more than 50%. If you look at the small caps, they were down at a 12.5 PE, which is a Gulf, sorry, a Gulf, a global financial (laughs) crisis low. So if you look at what the market has done, this is my only point. I don't want to fight the corner of that I think the economy is going to get stronger and job growth is going to get better because that's not my position. My position is that the market has made a move and priced in a lot of stuff. And I think right. this is what Karen was saying in terms of, look, I look at Walmart trading at 123 and change. This is a company that was trading at 120 back in 2019. Not that, that you know, you have to look at EPS, you have to look at a lot of different things. The stock price isn't linear. But I'm just telling you, I think we've priced in a lot of bad news. And if we're not having a recession, the market is too cheap here. Except that you guys make the point night after night that maybe big cap tech hasn't priced it in. For sure. And that's where the pain is that the result me. in the market. Dan? See, look, at cap, her, look at her paying attention. I don't me. know if you guys caught this. Guy repeated something I said just a minute ago. You know, like you repeated it right afterwards. And you're actually just pushing us forward 100%. I mean, that's it. Microsoft just eked out that little bit of news that's going to proceed the guide down, okay? And Apple's likely to guide down, and Tesla's likely to guide down, and we know that Facebook's quarter is going to stink, and Twitter's quarter is going to stink, and the list goes on and on. And that's how that E is going to catch up to the P that's already come down. All right. Well, for more on what could lie ahead for the consumer, let's bring in Steve Leesman. Steve, we've been having a very heated debate here about the markets, but we want to know this other piece of the puzzle, and that is the consumer and what sort of indications do we have right now? Because the theory that is going on the desk here, one of the theories is that the consumer in short order will be stressed if the consumer is not stressed already. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that in the data. Um, first of all, listen to the conversation, uh, you know, past the hemlock because uh, uh, Target Dude. missed its inventories. You know, I mean, I think <laughs> that uh, we can go a little bit far. Dan's got us in a recession and, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the discussion, it's a, little, a lot of certainty around what you're saying that I just don't share. Uh, just a quick riff on, on the target bit, which is that, um, you know, everybody from the Fed on down has gotten this wrong in terms of the recovery. Um, and it's interesting to see Target and some others make a mistake in terms of ordering like the pandemic buying was going to go on forever. Uh, and suddenly it, it, it found it's not. Um, and I'm not sure. I would, I would say you guys could be 100% right about this. I'm not sure if that's a case of a shift in terms of people going into the services and renewing some of their old spending patterns, or it's a sign of weakness, and I could go either way on it. Same thing with some of the stuff that Guy was talking about. For example, the savings rate is down, 
uh, to low levels, but people still are assumed to have a very good amount of savings from the pandemic level. You have very low unemployment and you have a very large gain, by the way, in the total wage bill to the economy. So I can make a case that the consumer, at least in the data I'm looking at, not the high, at least the high frequency data, is not giving it up just yet. Yes, there are some uh, layoffs that have been announced, but you also have this idea of a massive number of job openings and companies looking for, for hirings. Yes, there's been some rescinding in some areas. Tech looks to be taking it on the chin right now, but there are still a lot of people looking for workers. And, and we're still coming out of this uh, pandemic, and there's still a, a game of musical chairs to be played. And, you know, Target missed its inventory. And like I said last time, not going to jump off a building because Target misses inventories. Steve, Tim, uh, Dan started to raise a point that I think you as the economist can help us with. So the rate of change in terms of unemployment and, and how quickly um, would you be concerned? Uh, you know, I talked about the participation rate was part of the reason that that uh, joblessness actually didn't go lower. Excuse me, the, the, the employment rate didn't go lower. Um, but what, what would concern you and what's a level? Are there absolute levels on unemployment that you would be concerned out, out you know, August, yeah. September, December. Well, you know, uh, Dan was quoting David Rosenberg, who's obviously a great economist and uh, uh, on the pessimistic side of things. And, 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 and David was quoting a kind of a tried and true um, uh, ratio that exists out there is when you have this kind of rise. I just don't know if that's going to be true this time, uh, Tim, because, again, it's a pandemic thing. We went down to 3.6, 3.5%. We have a pretty massive labor shortage in this country for a bunch of reasons. A whole bunch of people retired early. Uh, our, our CNBC workforce survey showed that. We also had... Um, um, uh, you know, a, a decline of immigration. We had people who are still not comfortable going back to the workforce. So all of that is out there. Uh, I, I guess I'm willing to abide some increase in the unemployment rate without panicking. The big story right here is inflation and the consumer's ability to see through higher prices and continue spending higher. I think Dan is right. We have had some weakness in the second quarter. We were at 2.8 on the consensus. Uh, Atlanta Fed is not the be-all and end-all. It's one of them out there. It's at 0.9. Um, I think it's probably going to be stronger than that because one of the things we're going to get is a reversal of inventory. Look, guys, just real quick, real quickly. A month's or a quarter's inventory is made up of a whole bunch of companies, some of which over-ordered and some under-ordered and some got it just right. What's been happening the past two years is everybody had been under-ordered. And now one company comes along and over-ordered and missed the change here in the consumer. I just think a little bit of chill is, is perhaps warranted in this case. And don't push the panic button on the consumer because Target got that wrong. Well, it's a couple of the, actually the couple of the biggest retailers in the world, Walmart and Target, getting it wrong. But well, sure, but you, they would yeah. both get it wrong in, in, in the same direction in this right. in this context. And I and by the way, I have every confidence they'll get their inventory levels right because they're that good. Right. Steve, it's, a, uh, it's Karen. Thanks for being here. So when you look at this landscape now and you think about inflation, do you think we're going to start to see inflation come down? And how far does it have to come down for the Fed to stop moving? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more pessimistic on that front. That, that, that's the front that bothers me the most. Um, I think there's still three things to come through. I don't think we've seen the worst of the inflation from the Ukraine war yet. I don't think we've seen the worst of the inflation that would come from the China lockdown yet. And I still think there's some wage inflation to work through. Uh, the system here, which would go along with my idea that the job market is going to remain relatively strong over time. Um, the, the, the top of the curve is June. Uh, the Fed funds curve uh, is the July 2023 contract, and that's trading around 330. I think there's an upside risk of something above that, maybe three and a half or four percent for the Federal Reserve for at least a time. I, I mean, I am confident the Federal Reserve will win in the battle against inflation. The question is, does it win ugly? Steve, thank you. Pleasure. Steve Leesman. And what does ugly mean? 
feel like we got scolded by Steve a little bit, too. A little bit. I wouldn't drink that hemlock. We deserve to be scolded now. I don't even know what that means. Just saying. What does that mean? Get your knickers in a twist here. (laughs) Did he (laughs) mention knickers? I didn't hear it. No, no. I mean, maybe I I don't really care. It's anybody's arch. Dance. crazy. Steve Leesman. Um, but in terms of, of, of at what cost, don't we, do we need to see a weakening consumer? Do we need to see that consumer pull, pull back as a byproduct of what the Fed is doing? Winning ugly, I, I, listen, I don't know what, this is what winning ugly means to me. Crude continues to go higher. We will talk about energy. That clearly is the path it's been on. Tim's talked about this for a while. I mean, energy pretty much, with the exception of a couple of weeks, has been unabated to the upside, number one. Winning ugly would be for crude to continue to go higher. You're seeing what we're seeing with some of these retailers, but they can't get their arms around the one thing that's sort of the linchpin of everything, and that's energy prices. Everything feeds off of energy. Coming up, what recession? Stocks are headed higher. That's the word from J.P. Morgan's Marco Kolonovic. He will break down his bullish take in just a few, plus going nuclear, uranium surging on potential support from the Biden administration. The details and what it could mean for U.S. nuclear production when Fast Money returns. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The URA uranium ETF topping the tape today, jumping 6% on reports that the Biden administration will push for a $4.3 billion plan to buy enriched uranium from domestic producers. It is the latest push to wean the U.S. off of Russian imports. Uh, nuclear generates about 20% of the U.S.'s electricity, and yet we buy most of the uranium from abroad. And again, enriched uranium. So, I mean, this, this, look, this type of legislative action, and we've, we've been hearing this, we heard this from uh, Energy Secretary Granholm, this is, uh, there's no question, and, and the term or the, the, the words urgently and some of these uh, elements around where this is an agenda that I think cannot be ignored in the world order that we live in. Um, folks, you're not late to the uranium trade. And we've been talking about this for, for six months now. And if you look at a, a, a you know, chart of CCJ, this is a chart that with a fair amount of volatility, because I think between outside of dedicated resource players and people that actually play uranium, this has had a lot of uh, what we call tourist investors. But the, the volatility within that chart, it's a very impressive chart and actually back above that 200 day. 
I agree. It had a big day today. I think it was up, what, 8 or 9%. But you're getting an opportunity off this pullback to get into a space that still makes sense. To me, this is a secular shift. And if you think crude is going higher, which I do, I think Tim does as well, you, almost by definition, I think you have to be in these names. All right. Meantime, we've got a double buzzkill on Robinhood and Virtue Financial, both stocks falling in today's session after the SEC proposed new rules that could overhaul trading. The changes would require brokerages to bring orders to auction creating more competition, but undercutting online brokers like Robinhood and Virtu. Part of this also is the potential elimination of payment for order flow, which allows Robinhood to give retail traders free trades. But that's something that uh, people were complaining about. Dan? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. I, I think Robinhood's toast. I mean, the brand's toast. It's toast with their customers and their business model is toast. And some of these um, larger platforms that never, you know, actually, you know, Fidelity is one of them. There's lots of large platforms that were never selling the order flow. So, you know, to me, it actually makes the, the some of the existing platforms that much stronger. Yeah. I never quite understood the argument that it's better to the consumer because they have free trading. When, how, what was the free lunch, right? It's clearly, there is none. There is yeah, none, none, right? Yeah. And so, however, I do think Guy always makes the point, and I think he's right about it, it's never been better for the customer. It's never had, we've never had tighter spreads. I agree with all of that, but still, I never understood the payment for order flow. It didn't seem, it didn't seem, it seemed like... You mean the Robin argument Hood, for payment for order flow? Yes, yeah. that Robinhood was sort of usurping the customer's power. Right. Certainly, this would be better for the exchanges. They would get more. They would be more competitive in terms of pricing. And we're here at the NASDAQ. I mean, that stock has sold off precipitously, as CME has as well. They're starting to come back now. I think you're exactly right. I think the NASDAQ, if you just look at the stock, it's just way too cheap here. But getting back to Robinhood, and again, we seem to bash them all the time. But they're bashable, as they say. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's that old thing. Why are you wrecking this company? Because it's, it's wreckable. Well, this is bashable. Thank you, Tim, we by the way. We did that on the, the, the Wall Street Fast Money trailer, by the way. It's a <laughs> must-watch. It's on YouTube. You know, we we'll put it on the website. Yeah. No, but the stock, to Dan's point, I don't see any compelling reason to own Robin. And we've said that now for a long time. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The crude climb continues. Oil surging as supply concerns grip the market. But our next guest says, have no fear. There's still some high energy left for stocks. Plus, a retail deal underway. The latest on Kohl's and its exclusive sale talks. The traders are giving the trade a try on next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil settling at three-month highs at just over $120 a barrel. It comes as Shanghai ends its two-month COVID lockdown, opening the door for higher demand and more upside for prices. But it didn't spook Wall Street stocks up across the board. And our next guest believes the market can handle another leg higher in energy prices and could reclaim 2022 highs. Marco Kalanovic is a chief global market strategist and co-head of global research at J.P. Morgan. He joins us on the Fast Line. Marco, welcome back to Fast Money. Thank you, Melissa. Good to be back. So you like energy still. It's your top trade, and you think oil can go to 150, and it wouldn't be a problem. So we published a few months back that we think consumer can handle oil 130, 135, because we had that back in 2010 to 2014. Uh, so inflation adjusted, uh, that was basically the level. So, so we think consumer can handle that. Now, we do think there could be some potential for their spikes in oil, especially given what we have a situation in Europe and the war. Uh, so we wouldn't be surprised. But it could be a short-lived spike and, and uh, uh, eventually sort of normalize. However, energy stocks are still um, our top call. They're still attractive. Actually, valuations went lower uh, despite the stock price appreciation. Earnings grow faster, so multiples actually lower now on energy than it was um, a year ago. When you think about what the consumer can handle, Marco, I mean, it's one thing mm-hmm. to say the consumer can handle $150 mm-hmm. barrel in oil and, and all the corollaries off of that in terms of gas prices and, and you know, mm-hmm. keeping your house cool over the summer, et cetera. But when you're seeing that rise in conjunction with higher energy mm-hmm. price, higher food prices, excuse me, higher rates, et cetera, mm-hmm. what, what is the breaking point of the consumer? I mean, it sounds like you think the consumer will keep spending pretty strongly and it wouldn't hurt the economy. Well, the question, Melissa, is how long it can it, uh, that condition can stay. You know, we do think that sometimes in the second half of the year situation in Europe, geopolitical problems in Europe could uh, ease a little bit. So, so the question is for how long. You know, so not 150 oil for sure, not for indefinitely. Consumer would buckle it at some point, but we think short-term spikes can be handled. Even this level on a more sustained basis, I think consumer could handle. Of course, consu- a consumer spending pattern would change. You know, so there would be some losers and some. Uh, energy, we think, would be a winner of that. You know, so certainly would be also a little bit of reshuffle that would not be uh, entirely painless for, for the other segments. Hey, Marco, it's Tim. One of the things that I think has been most impressive about your market calls over the years is you've, you've been very balanced and, and uh, uh, reasonable during periods of hysteria. One of the things you're saying in the second half of the year is that there's going to be a gradual market recovery, possibly a Fed mm-hmm. pause, but much lower volatility. And with that, mm-hmm. again, some market factors that would be spurring on vol-sensitive investors back into the market. Talk about that, because I think that's critical. Sure. Thank you, Tim. So, yes, basically in the first half of the year, especially first four or five months, uh, we saw very high volatility, not just in equities. Uh, there was very, very high volatility in rates, in bond, uh, in bond, bond space. Also, there was, a, unfortunately, this negative correlation of, of, of bonds and rates, uh, sorry, equities and rates, you know, which have further uh, made the problem worse. You know, as a result, investors have been de-risking pretty steadily in the first five months of the year. So right now, we estimate that, for instance, positioning of these um, investors such as Volt Targeters, Risperity, insurance companies, gone down basically to the, to, to, to the bottom, to the call it fifth percentile. So now what we expect um, is that volatility normalizes a little bit. So VIX kind of in a low to mid-20s, and that over time pulls inflows. So these investors, they back uh, exposure, uh, and they buy uh, equities. And, and we think that these flows could be around $500 billion 
if volatility can sort of stay where it's now and go a little bit lower, you know, so call it VIX in, in, in low to mid-20s, you know. So we expect that, and we think that's a, that's a part of our thesis why we think market can recover, you know. So positioning is very, very low. Your top picks, Marco, energy, small caps, and high beta tech, and you don't see any recession coming. And so I'm wondering um, what you think of prognostications made by some key figures on Wall Street of hurricanes that could be the size of Superstorm Sandy. And I'm talking about, of course, your boss, Jamie Dimon. So, so, so look, every, everybody's kind of looking for all po- possibilities, and, and one wants to be ready for all possibilities. But our research view is that base case is that there is no recession. So we actually, we do, uh, we do forecast some slowdown. Uh, so, of course, nobody's saying that there are no problems. But we think that the U.S. economy and global economy will stay out of the recession. You know, and uh, um, uh, as such, we don't think investors will sit in cash for the next 12 months, you know, waiting for this recession. So I think at some point, as you, Melissa, mentioned, if the Fed can give some indication, um, if we continue to see consumer, especially on the services side, uh, uh, holding up, which we do expect, you know, then we think investors will gradually come back, uh, come back into equity markets. Marco, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Marco Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan. Okay. What do you think, Dan? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, listen, obviously, Jamie Dimon's one of those followed, you know, bankers on the planet, and he has lots of data. He's seeing lots of different things. and He doesn't run a research shop individually. He's probably speaking from, you know, the hip a little bit, um, you know, but then that was followed by Elon Musk, who's the CEO of a company that uh, makes electric cars that has a $700 billion market cap, who says he is super worried or something like that about the economy. I mean, you have to piece this stuff together. And you have to think about who has a lot to lose by not being out there and saying such things. And I think those guys certainly do. And I think that you probably want to pay more attention to those sorts of warnings. Elon's never said anything extraordinary. Well, I mean, but you know what? (laughs) I mean, I'm not a fan of his, but but what I'm saying is, is like, I I mean, that was a pretty significant comment. I'm surprised it didn't come with an SEC filing. I mean, if Mary Barra said it, we'd have a different reaction, right? As opposed to Elon Musk. And I mean, granted, they're very different kinds of figures and they speak in very different manners. But in terms of the head of a major automaker in the United States, if somebody said really bad feeling about the economy, you would probably get more attention than than what Elon Musk, you know, saw. I think that's absolutely fair. She didn't say it, but it's just to me, it's just a matter. Listen, you can't discount Jamie Dimon when he says something like that. He obviously chooses his words extraordinarily carefully. He knows what he's saying. He knows the ramifications behind of some of the things he said. Elon Musk, probably not so much. I'll take Jamie at his word. Now, again, what category doesn't matter, but I still think there's pain ahead. And we talked about energy. Energy's not going lower anytime soon, by the way. Let's be clear. I mean, because when he had his investor day, that's not the story he told. When he was talking about um, what kind of risk they will take, he was being conservative. He was saying, we're going to service our existing customers. We're not necessarily going to go out and take unnecessary risk because of things that could happen. So, All right. Well, let's stick with energy here. Check out ExxonMobil jumping to its highest level since 2014. The stock is now up more than 68 percent this year, and options traders are betting it is about to climb even higher. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. A lot of energy names saw a lot of options activity today. Exxon was certainly one of the leaders there. It traded well over two times its average daily options volume, calls outpacing puts, by about two to one, the trade that caught my eye, the September 115 calls, we saw a buyer of 1,800 of those paying just under three bucks for them. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to rally above that 115 strike price by September expiration, and that would be an increase of about 15% or so from today's closing price. All right. Thank you, Mike. And speaking of ExxonMobil, 
CNBC's David Faber is getting an inside look into the company in a new documentary, Do Not Miss, ExxonMobil at the Crossroads, that premieres June 22nd. And by the way, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Novavax shares just opening back up for trading in the last few minutes. The news that sent shares surging. We've got the details straight ahead. And the Kohl's Chronicle continues. Shares surging after the company announced a new sale development. And that has one of our traders fired up. <laughs> Guess which one? The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Kohl's surging 10% on word that it is in exclusive talks to be taken private by the franchise group, the parent company of the Vitamin Shop. So, Karen, how are you feeling today about this? Fired up, as usual, but better. I mean, I, I'm happy to see it, right? We knew that they were one of the names that uh, had been talked about. What I really like is that we have a number out there, $60. We're not quite sure of the structure, so that's something that hopefully in the next three weeks they'll, they'll get to. But the reason that I like that it's out there is that three days ago, when there was that other story that talks seemed to have ended and the mm-hmm. process was on hold, Kohl's traded to 37 or $38. So I hope that management sees, okay, that's that option, the go-it-alone option, $38. Here's an option for $60. Hopefully, they will do the right thing. I, I want to believe them. I do believe they're in this process here. Just bring it to the finish line. You can do it. Come on, guys. You can do it. So you would, you would go ahead and say, this is the one, instead of shopping around? Or I believe they probably okay. have. And this is it. I think that, right. When they got bids in January, we were looking at a very different world. Had they taken them more seriously then at the time, I think they would have gotten more money for shareholders. But this is where we are right now. $60 seems pretty good when 37.8 was where it was trading right. three days ago. All right. Coming up, we've got the latest details on the newest COVID vaccine to take a big step toward approval. The details ahead. And throughout June, we are celebrating Pride Month. Here's Ina Freed of Axios. To me, Pride Month is all about celebrating all the work that has been done to get us to this moment, all the people who fought, sometimes with their lives, so that we have a chance at equality. And it's also a reminder that there is so much work still to be done. I am so proud of the next generation of trans and non-binary youth. They are fierce, they are happy, they are thriving, and they've had a chance to have a childhood in their gender, which is amazing and has really changed the game. Welcome back to Fast Money. Novavax shares surging after the company cleared a key FDA hurdle in its effort to bring a new COVID vaccine to market. Shares opening just moments ago after being halted for an entire trading day. Shares are up more than 20 percent right now. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the details. Meg. Hey, Mel. Well, an outside panel of advisors to the FDA voted 21 to 0 with just one abstention in favor of recommending Novavax's COVID vaccine for emergency use authorization. Uh, Now, this would be just the primary two-dose series of Novavax's vaccine. And so a lot of people are wondering, what role is this going to play right now? Well, the CDC today in the FDA meeting pointed out there are 27 million Americans who still haven't had their first dose of a COVID vaccine. There is some hope that the company and even the FDA has expressed that perhaps having this more traditional vaccine technology, not the newer mRNA vaccine, uh, might bring some of those people over. But I spoke with Novavax's CEO, Stan Irk, just now, asked him about the importance of this vaccine, uh, given the landscape. Here's what he said. 
But we have a big role to play out there. There's, there's COVID's going to be around for a long time. It's, it's moving to Omicron. Uh, there's boosting to be done. There's the whole world of, of adolescents and children to be vaccinated. And I think our vaccine's perfect for that. And he told me they are planning to submit quickly data for a booster dose. Of course, the FDA is going to meet in two weeks to talk about updating the vaccines for the fall. He said they started clinical trials of Omicron-based vaccines last week. Mel, this is a huge moment for this company, which has been around for such a long time. Stock was down to something like $4 before the pandemic began. 150 employees, uh, quite a big turnaround we've seen uh, through the pandemic, although it took a long time to get to this point. Melissa? Is there any indication, Meg, that this um, this shot can be used as a booster to mRNA vaccines or we don't know that yet? That is an expectation. We're going to have to see the data and how the FDA consider that. But they have generated data looking at that and the immune response that happens when they do that. And of course, um, for a lot of people, that would be the way they would encounter this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also spoke with one of the advisors tonight who noted uh, we need to keep improving these vaccines because this is going to be with us, this this virus, for a long time. And a lot of kids are going to continue to be born who haven't been vaccinated yet. So it'll be used potentially both ways. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Guy. The average price target, I think, on Novavax is like $131. I think Jeff, I think Jeffrey's just initiated or raised their price target to 180-ish. I'll say this: the risk reward, if you, you know, the word I like to use, Mel, have the temerity to venture into names temerity. like this. Temerity. There's like other words you could have used. Well, no, I could have. But this, listen, this is a friendly show. We don't use like those types of there. words, What's okay? Wrong with courage. Courage. Oh, nice. Yes. What gives a muskrat is musk, Mel. Oh, say it. Cowardly lion. Kurt, oh, you, you just left okay, me hanging. I think Novavax goes higher from here. Despite the $9 move in the aftermarket, I think you can make a compelling case that this stock should be twice of where it currently is trading. Well, if you, Are you oh, an mRNA still? No, I'm not, I've never been an mRNA. Oh, I thought you no. were. In fact, if you compare the two, you, you can pretty much look at the same two-thirds cut-down move. Like, they, they lost, I don't know, 20 bucks a share last year at Novavax. Um, they're expected, if you look at the forward, to make 20 bucks a share. Uh, I, I don't even think you're somewhere in the middle. So, I, I, look, biotech to me is not a safe place right now, even a company doing great things like this. Coming up, L.A. Well, L.A. Lacrosse talk. <laughs> you, know, you know what got me? Yeah. And I hardly talk about what's in the prompter. But in the prompter, it's L.A. dash and then C-R-O-S-S. And as a former lacrosse player in high school, there should be an E at the end. Anyway, lacrosse talk. We're taking a look at the state of sports. It's a pun. It's a pun. It's a pun. The details next. Fast Money is next. (laughs) Our next guest is the co-founder and president of the PLL PLL, a professional lacrosse league founded in 2018. The PLL just kicked off its new season. Tomorrow they will debut a new documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival. This big media blitz comes at a time when the ad market is softening, the streaming landscape is unsettled, and the consumer is dealing with record inflation. Here to walk us through this challenging landscape is Paul Rabel, the president of the PLL. So, Paul, you heard it, tough ad market, uh, but still the power seems to be in the hands of the, of the people who have the content. You have the content. You just inked a deal with ESPN, et cetera. What was that process like, and how did you choose that streamer versus others? Yeah, well, it's great to be here in studio. Last time we all connected was virtually. Uh, we'll talk about ESPN first. So when we launched in 2018, we did a three-year deal with NBC. At first, we were on their streaming product, Gold which is a unique pass. Then we moved to Peacock. So the streaming environment has changed before our eyes. 
we cut a deal with ESPN, um, we believe that they have kind of the market figured out better than anyone. And it doesn't, it certainly helps with Disney and Hulu as a bundle. Um, but what they've also done is aggregated a ton of sports properties. And then they have this flywheel marketing effect that lives on linear and through their almost you know, infinite inventory across social as they keep the largest social handles amongst all the networks. Talk to us a little bit, uh, Paul, about the growth over the last few years, because you guys have had a couple really unique markets. You've had a couple unique products. You guys did a very successful bubble during the pandemic. That's sort of thing. I know that there was a very captive audience back then, but your numbers seem to be really increasing. Yeah. And so now you have this big flywheel to take advantage of. Yeah, what was unique about the pandemic, and as we talk about the challenging environment today, uh, that was more challenging. But what it did is put, for the first time in a long time, all sports on hold. So if we're all kind of sprinting a marathon and the NBA, the NFL are miles and miles ahead, they all came back to the starting block. And because we're a true single entity league, we devised this bubble concept and announced first that got out of the gates faster, which allowed us to grow attention, sponsorship revenue. Um, and we've been really working on our product and our experience. So that's taken us to a place now in year four where we're seeing our sponsorship revenue up 60 percent on a compounded annual growth rate since inception. Tickets are up 34 percent year over year. Our media is up with our ESPN deal. Uh, this past weekend we opened uh, and we did close to 50 million impressions, two and a half million engagements, which has a lot to do with why the streaming environment is, uh, I think, catapulting well into the future for uh, the sports fan. Paul, you're also taking a page from the NBA in terms of promoting your players. They do a great job. You guys have done an amazing job. How important is that? Well, I think it runs hand-in-hand hand with live broadcasts. So, yes, the ad market's softening, but what sports has different than any other property of your marketer, it's the last-standing firewall for appointment-watching television. So you know as an advertiser, when you're spending on sports, that you have live eyeballs. And that's really difficult to get in today's day and age where everything's on demand. So to build your live broadcast, we need to build our player narratives. And you do that through things like our documentary film that's living at Tribeca, which is all about the build of the league and stuff that we talked about on this show, to other kind of unscripted series that we're seeing in market, like Drive to Survive that Netflix has. Uh, but it's lived even in film from Mighty Ducks to Rudy, where you create kind of broader understanding of sport and sport narrative and athlete narrative. So you feel more invested as a fan. So you, you said the softening <clears throat> ad market. Do you see it? Because you mentioned sponsorships are up. So there's willingness to spend still. Yeah. Where do you think that's coming from? Well, I think that marketers have to get tighter and more sophisticated. And so if you look at like where all businesses are going over the next 10 years, direct to consumer and recurring revenue. And so you have to get as quickly down to the bottom of the funnel to acquire customers. And for the reasons I mentioned with live sports and also the creator economy, those are the two best paths of doing so. So what we have as a league is we're true single entity. Right. All right. So we own the league IP, the teams and access to players. So we kind of hit both. We have our live product experiential marketing on site where we can create solutions for our brand partners. And then through our players, we go directly to the audience, which we can also tie in with our brand partners. Paul, thanks for stopping by. It's always good to see you. Thanks for having me. Paul Rabel of the PLL. Coming Who would have thought these two, the lacrosse players? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, final trades are up next. trade. Tim. We talked about uranium tonight. This is a trade that despite all the developments in the last year, you're looking at the URA ETF exactly where it was one year ago. Uranium's a long-term trade, but short-term, there's, there's certainly callous. Karen? Yes, the name we don't talk about that much, which is Lyft. 
And as we see reopen, which we do, this company is actually going to be more than break even, profitable actually, trading at 1.1 times revenue or so. Lift. Dan Nathan. Yes, yeah, CME. I mentioned it last week. I just mentioned it here. I think it's cheap. It's back at the level. Guy. With Paul and Tim sitting, that's about as handsome as this desk has ever been, those two sitting next <laughs> Heavy to on one end of the heavy, desk. Heavy, heavy, heavy. I can't compete with that. You can on the other Come side. on. Unbelievable. NASDAQ NDAQ, Melms. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money from the West Coast with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.